Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a good afternoon uh, in Cape Town, South Africa, where we are joined once again by one of my most favorite guests that we haven't had on for a very long time. Uh, Sanusha, Sanusha Naidu is a research associate at the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria and also a project manager at FAHAMU's Emerging Powers Program. And if you're not familiar with FAHAMU, it is a fantastic resource uh, for all things Pan-African. It's a Pan-African network for social justice, uh, for various social justice organizations. So it has been three, maybe even four years, Sanusha. So welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, and it's great. Congratulations uh, oh, uh, on the well, major success you've had. Thank you so much. It's been a long road since uh, since you and I first uh, spoke uh, all those years ago. And I remember when we spoke a, a long time ago, we did bring up the question of the BRICS. And today we're going to be talking about the BRICS Bank, and this was a topic that came up this summer uh, at the BRICS Summit in uh, Fortaleza in northern Brazil, where uh, all the BRICS powers got together. And if you're not familiar with who the BRICS are, it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Now, the highlight of that summit from this summer was the announcement of a $50 billion BRICS development bank. Now, a lot of people were saying, well, do we need another development bank? We've got the World Bank, you've got IMF as a lending, and you, we've got a whole construct of USAID, DFID, of, of European Union aid organizations and development organizations. But clearly the BRICS came out and said, we need to have a new BRICS bank. Well, this summer, Sanusha penned a, uh, an, an opinion column for the Sunday Independent called Pathway to Sustainable Growth, where she did uh, a little bit of an evaluation of the BRICS bank and its merit. We're bringing her today on the show in part because what's happened to this fanfare. So let's get started. Tell us a little bit about all the hype and excitement from the summer of this $50 billion BRICS bank. It's been rather quiet since then. Um, give us an update on where we are with this bank. Um, I think what is interesting is that uh, since the Fortaleza summit in July, where there was a lot of, uh, in the build-up to the summit in July that was hosted by Brazil, there was a lot of build-up as to what's going to happen with the bank. Because at the previous summit in Durban uh, in 2013, the heads of state gave out a mandate to their finance ministers to say, go ahead now, we are going to, for we are going to formalize this institutional uh, a financial a, a bank. We wanted to actually have some kind of meat to it. We wanted to have some kind of structure. And so they went back and they kind of came together and they said, okay, we're going to start formalizing structures around it. And so the hype building up to Fortaleza was what's going to, what's going to come out of this. And I think there were two or three key issues that, that emerged. The first one was where would the bank reside? Who would actually be um, the, 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 the kind of country that will host the bank? Second, there was a, there was questions of who would lead the bank in terms of a president and and and, and third were governance standards and norms it was quite interesting at, at at the at the conclusion of the summit and if you go onto the BRICS website which is the uh, Fortaleza summit website hosted by um, the, the Brazilian Finance, uh, foreign ministry you can pick up the whole terms of agreement for the bank and that gives you some really good insight into what the bank is going to be doing so now we kind of saw after Fortaleza we saw that China will host the headquarters of the bank in Shanghai. Uh, India will get uh, the uh, India will get to nominate the president of the bank, and then of course South Africa would essentially host 
concurrently as they're setting up the headquarters in Shanghai, will set up the first regional office of the bank, which is going to be in Africa and most, most, most likely be in Johannesburg. So we already see a lot of structure now coming together in terms of the kind of theoretical framework that they were discussing up until Fortaleza. Uh, in terms of the kind of behind-the-scenes politics to Fortaleza, there were interesting dynamics that were emerging between several of the between three of the countries. And in in in, in terms of what I've heard, uh, at the last minute there was talk that China wanted the bank to be res- wanted the head quarters of the bank to be in Shanghai. Uh, and there had to be, and, and up until that point, I think South Africa was quite a heavy contender in that in that space. And up until that point, there had to be some kind of, 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 of um, you know, sparring, a sparring match, if you use a, a boxing analogy, uh, taking place in, in, in that space. But eventually, I think China got it. And I think the compromise was South Africa would then have to go to plan B, which was to concurrently set up the the the, the, the office, uh, the, the African regional office in, in, in Johannesburg. So I think in that way, Corbus uh, and Eric, I think what we've seen is a lot of speculation in the run-up to Fortaleza, but now we're seeing that there's now structure being given to this framework. Um in terms of the structures, well, more recently at the BRICS, uh, sorry, at the G, uh, the UNGA meeting of the of, of 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 countries in September 2014, there was another meeting of the finance ministers of the BRIC countries, saying giving uh, a, a basically. Uh, following on from the meeting in Fortaleza, but also the meeting of the heads of state on the sidelines of UNGA, to say that now we need to start getting the norms and standards up to mark in terms of how would they start lending. And more recently, I think at the G20 in uh, in Brisbane, we saw President Xi Jinping come out very emphatically in a number of public and media statements, uh, on the one hand, criticizing the lack of pro uh, reforms on the IMF side of, of, of the U.S. Congress, but also saying uh, sending sending out a, a challenge to his BRIC member partners, saying to them, "We need you guys to start moving and expediting the bank." So we're seeing a lot of movement happening behind the scenes, and one of the challenges they have to do is that they've set a time frame. 2016 is when the first set of projects need to become on stream for the bank to start lending. So there's a lot of pressure on them to use next year to set it up, and hopefully. We'll see what happens in um, in in Russia at the, at the next summit. Um, so, Nisha, so just just a very very basic question: Where is the, the the BRICS Development Bank's capital coming from? Like, who is contributing what? Okay, in terms of the BRICS Development Capital, you all know there's equal shares. Uh, so each of them will contribute uh, equally. At think it's 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 50 billion us dollars uh, and that was also one of those those issues that became quite a a niggling issue because countries like south africa uh you know there were questions about whether they could contribute sorry not 20 50 billion i think it's 25 but i stand corrected uh, where would they get the funds to contribute to this bank and there were also questions of how will contribution to the ba- uh, the, the financial contribution affect what is your your voting rights within the bank almost a similar de- argument being made in, in, in terms of the IMF and, and so forth, in terms of voting and special drawing rights and so forth. So I think to, to a large extent what we see, what this bank is, what this bank is, is that there's equal contribution. All of them will actually try and, and, and make that contribution either from um, their, 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 their external current account 
uh, or, or bring that money in from money that is set is set out in treasury. In the case of South Africa, set out in treasury, and they will draw on that. But at the same time, they're not precluding other money to come in from outside of the of the of the five countries. And this means that you may want to also raise mark, uh, money in capital markets and financial markets in the global. Uh, uh, system and that then now raises other issues around the governance and norms and standards of the structure of the bank in terms of what's going to happen. One of the proposals being put on the table, and I'm not sure if this is if this has been an accurate assessment on my side, but one of the proposals is also to tap into some of these uh, pension funds around the world. Uh, if you if you think about it, if you take it's not really directly linked to the bank, but it's definitely a, uh, an avenue of, of of source of revenue. Is that they say that there's about 350 billion dollars of worth of pension funds that are being misused or not basically being productively used. So to try and link that to some kind of infrastructure spending. So this bank, in a sense, is is going to be, I think these are the key issues going forward. If you speak to people in, in, in the National Treasury in South Africa, if you speak to colleagues in, in the finance ministry in, in, in China or India, you get the sense that they have to have very strict codes of, of conduct in terms of conditionality, etc. But they're not talking about a bank that's going to come up with conditionality set in terms of lending. They want to be less rigid and more flexible. But the question is, they have to have norm standards and governance structures on how they're going to regulate and control this money. Yeah, so let's kind of step back a little bit and, and take a look at this from the Chinese context. It's been quite a year for the Chinese when it comes yeah. to trying to reshape the international order. I'll, I'll even go back a little bit further this. The year that China got into the World Trade Organization, it basically shut down the WTO. We have not had an agreement since Doha. And the Chinese led the charge along with India to say, you know what, Europe, U.S. and Japan uh, spending a billion dollars a day on agricultural subsidies, nah, that doesn't work for us. Then they come up yeah. just this past year, Xi Jinping, with a much more assertive foreign policy saying that, you know, this Asian Development Bank model in Asia, that doesn't work for us. We're going to launch the Asian Infrastructure Bank. They also come yeah. along, as we've talked about here, with the BRICS Bank saying that, you know, the World Bank IMF system of development finance, that doesn't work for us. And so what they're doing is they're taking the 20th century institutions that were effectively designed by the West, the United States in particular, and trying to reshape it in their mind and in their, to, to, to adhere to their agenda. So I guess for me, my question is, if Africa did not think or does not think that Western-led international institutions such as the World Bank didn't work for them, what gives them any type of optimism that a Chinese-driven or Chinese-dominated bank, because frankly, let's be honest here, at oil at $70 a barrel, the Russians are not going to be rich, India's economy is not growing anywhere near as fast as it, people thought it would, where we are, and Brazil is no shining model of economic growth right now. South Africa is just too small to really count when you're up against these big players. So I guess, what gives people the optimism that China will be uh, any more responsible uh, than, than, than the United States or, or, or Britain was when they ran the show? I think that's the, that's the actual key question, Eric, because to a large extent, there's a lot of speculation about this. We don't know what this bank is going to be doing. We don't know what this bank is, how this bank is going to be lending, nor do we understand what will be the governance structure of the bank. So there's a lot of speculation about what will be the impact of this bank on, say, uh, renewed debt issues in Africa. 
for example, how will they how will they actually impact on what has been a curse on African economies and that structural adjustment programs that came out from the IMF and the World Bank in terms of um, the impact it's had on, on, on African economic growth and structural economic performance. The second thing is there's a lot of there's, there's uncertainty again in terms of whether Africa will actually be part of will, will be given a key dry, a key share in this bank in terms of recipient or projects uh, if China is not looking to see how this could actually continually to geopolitically increase its leverage and influence in its Asian uh, region. And I think that's a key driver. A lot of what's going on in terms of the kinds of institutions that's, uh, that China has set out as parallel institutions to the, 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 the so-called Bretton Woods as well as the, the, the 20th century institutions of finance, international finance, financial uh, lending has been focused on Asia. I mean, you spoke about the Asia, infra, the Asia Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank. You spoke about... Um, Trying to set up the BRICS bank, uh, the BRICS bank, and you also spoke about uh, the fact that China is also very key about what's going on with free, the promoting the the free trade area of Asia uh, as a kind of uh, counteract to 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 the U.S.'s uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, as well as to maybe the the the, the questions. Of the of what's going on in Asia Pacific, so I think to a large extent uh, we have to ask ourselves what would this African regional represent uh, regional uh, office of the BRICS Development Bank what would it be doing and, and will they be given some kind of what I would call ring fence fund funding that will come out of the of, of the BRICS Bank be put in the African context and that will be now for 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 projects or will it actually mean that this this kind of office would have to then then essentially also apply to the BRICS bank. So what's what's uncertain for me is the is reconciling this 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 office in Africa with the office in with with the African Development Bank and how the African Development Bank is going to also be working in 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 in, in and synchronizing its operations with this with this office. The second thing about it is you know we we talk about whether these institutions are going to be good for Africa or bad. Uh, I think we're not we're not sure what it's going to do, but there's also the question of how does this now also fit in with China's bilateral engagements in Africa through the FOCAC? And this year, I mean, next year, South Africa is going to host the uh, the, the 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 FOCAC summit, and it's going to assume uh, the chair of the summit with China. So I think it's going to be interesting again to to probably raise another question, and that is beyond the BRICS. Okay, Cobus, let me take you beyond the BRICS here and ask this. You know. We've talked about over the sh on the show over the past, let's say, nine to twelve months of a of a hardening of African perceptions of a of China in many respects. You know, Botswana, Ghana, uh, Zambia becoming much tougher negotiators. Uh, Rwanda and, and Ethiopia as well with the Chinese. I guess my uh, my my feeling is that although South Africa is becoming much closer, particularly the ANC with China, the rest of the continent may not be as warm to this idea. And what about some of the issues and these questions that Sunusha brings up in terms of the, the role of the Chinese and, and what I think will be an outsized role? Do you think that there's a potential risk for the Chinese that they're overplaying their hand in the development finance space? Well, I think, 
it will very much depend on what the particular what the particular projects are that that are being funded um, and how efficiently those the the, the funding actually works. Um, you know, kind of we haven't we haven't had a a real kind. Of, we don't really have an idea of like what particular kind of fund you know kind of projects will actually be funded. Um, and you know, I think the the success of that in Africa will depend very much on those on those particulars. I think it will also well, one thing that that they probably need to take in in mind is South Africa's own complicated position within Africa. Um, I think South Africa is frequently quite resented, you know, kind of by the rest of Africa, and the ANC government hasn't really, you know, kind of helped with that because um, recently President Jacob Zuma has made some quite kind of, um, you know, kind of comments, you know, kind of that, that implies that 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 South Africa is sitting at a completely different level of development than the rest of Africa, and you know, kind of African standards don't apply here, um, you know, which obviously made no one very happy. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a whole lot of emotional baggage that comes with that. What I'm wondering though is is to is to to flip um, Sanusha's you know the uh, answer previous answer over uh, a little bit and to ask Sanusha how do you think Africa should prepare itself to make the best use of of this kind of BRICS development bank? Particularly recently, um, it's been announced that there's a new there's a big new tripartite free trade agreement in Africa between um, the common market for for Eastern and Southern Africa the Eastern African community and the Southern African development community. Um, and that's in preparation for a continent-wide free trade agreement by 2017. Do you think this kind of free trade agreement will affect how Africa does business with the Development Bank? And what else do you think the continent should do? Um, on the first thing, uh, Quobus, I think there's a very clear indication by the leaders of the BRICS, uh, the leaders of BRICS, is that this bank is focusing on infrastructure projects. That seems to be a key driver of what this bank is going to be funding in terms of development finance and projects, etc. Uh, I think what has already happened is that we've seen a reaction to this from the World Bank. The World Bank has now set up a billion dollar, uh, a billion dollar infrastructure fund, which again is quite interesting because it's almost as if to say, well, you know, for a few years the World Bank and other kind of um, traditional development financial institutions withdrew from the infrastructure infrastructure sector in Africa, and then you saw this boom happening by, by China in the infrastructure sector, and now we're seeing a return of these, of these actors to the sector. And I think we've already seen how, how Africa is leveraging it, because, for example, uh, the point that Eric made earlier about if, if, if the cost of, 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 of the barrel of oil is $70, how are economies like Nigeria going to survive? But also, importantly, there are countries like Ghana who have now supposedly uh, found oil, and they're using that as a kind of uh, uh, equity, liquidity back, uh, but, uh, liquidity backing for their for their finance. And just more recently, I think there was a story in in in, uh, in Ghana where the deal that was signed with Chinese around prospecting and using that as a kind of infrastructure back deal uh, didn't work out in their favor, and so they went back to the World Bank. So I think leverage is going to happen when we actually see how. Uh, the, the, the African countries are going to become astute in understanding what the feasibility studies say about the impact of these projects on both their socioeconomic development, but also, I think, more importantly, on the criteria of environmental issues. Uh, and environmental is going to be quite an important uh, uh, factor in determining this. How they actually get, I mean, whether or not we'll see these 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 uh, these impact in, uh, feasibility studies actually being drawn out 
by people that understand the sectors in Africa is going to be critical or we're going to see a team of, 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 of who are going to be external consultants coming in again and doing these studies and then the money is going to flow out. I think that's another important point that we need to put out there just to consider as one of those niggling issues. The third issue, I think, on the TFTA, the Tripartite Free Trade Area, something very interesting, you know, what it does is that it gives you a market of about 26 countries. Uh, and that's that. That's going to be signed in supposedly going to be signed in Egypt this December, and this is going to open up a whole lot of interesting spaces for for economic transactions, cross border movement of trade, movement of people, goods, etc., trading services, and so forth. What I find very difficult to understand about the TFTA is how does the TFTA reconcile with other regional economic. Uh, programs, particularly the EAC Customs Union, uh, the SEDIC free trade area, and of course COMESA's uh, uh, free trade area. There has to be some reconciliation around particular rules around the FTA. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm beginning to get a bit concerned that we, we tend to dive into FTAs in Africa without understanding the repercussions this has for recreating regional integration play, uh, 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 processes. But at the same time, they act as non-tariff barriers to the free movement of trade and inter-regional trade and African trade. Now, although it's a little bit too early to see what's going to happen with uh, the BRICS Bank, what we do know and what we can hear from what Sunusha is saying is the tectonic plates of the international order are clearly shifting right now. I mean, how and how this all shakes out, we don't know, but something big is going on here. And clearly the BRICS Bank represents a direct challenge to the existing status quo of the international development finance model. Um, the article is Pathway to Sustainable Growth. It's a great primer on the BRICS uh, the BRICS Bank that came out and that was announced this summer, and, and Sanusha just lays out the key issues. It's excellent. Go to the Sunday Independent website. It was back in July 20th, and you can find it under Sanusha's name there. Uh, Sanusha, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. It's just such a pleasure to have you back again. It was wonderful, and I enjoyed it. Anytime. Oh, well, uh, I think we'll take you up on that. Yeah, I think there's a parting shot, Eric and Corbis. I think one of the things I find interesting about what China has done this year, I mean, you're right, this has been a big year for China, uh, creating institutions and trying to set up alternative institutions. The key, the key underlying tone for me is that these institutions are not there to displace the existing institutions. They are there as levers and leverage to say, well, if we don't get what we want on this end, we will still have our own institutions to fall back on. That might depend on what side of the fence you're sitting on, how you interpret and perceive that, right? Yeah, if you're China, then you're playing. You're playing. You you you've opened up the space. You've opened up the the the, the so-called geographical tectonic plates in the in the global system, uh, and you're giving. I mean, you know, as 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 South Africa's minister of foreign affairs keeps mentioning, we. We are we are in BRICS to uh, to collaborate for uh, to compete and to collaborate, um, and I think that's more or less how how I see what what's happening. At some point, countries in different regions are going to start thinking about this more seriously, uh, and it actually gives multilateralism more 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 sense of of, of complication and sophistication. Huh. Again, Kobus, an optimistic note that we're ending the show on. We don't do that very often here on the show, so uh, very exciting. <laughs> Sanusha is a research associate at the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria, and she's also a project manager at Fahumu, uh, Fah Fah Fahamu, sorry, uh, Emerging Powers Program, which of course is the Pan-African uh, Network for Social Justice. And uh, Sanusha, if people want to follow what you're doing either 
at the University of Pretoria or in some of your other social media activities, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? Uh, you can give them my Gmail account, the one that you have, okay. as well as on Twitter. And what's your Twitter is, name? Uh, it's at Sanusha Naidu. Excellent. And Kobus, uh, tell us what's the best way to follow what you're reading and writing these days. You'll find me on our Facebook page. That's the facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me over on Twitter as well at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. E -O -L -A -N -D -E -R. And alongside with uh, Kobus, we're both updating our Facebook page uh, almost 24 hours a day now some days, depending on the, on the news. So it's a great way to stay on top of the latest China-Africa news. And uh, listen, the best way to follow this podcast, just go over to iTunes, search for China Africa Project, will come right, right up there. Uh, and if you're over on the web and you can check out uh, China File, uh, that's the Asia Society's excellent China resource, uh, the show's there too. So you can find us every week on Chinafile.com. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.